Well, good morning, man. It is good to be back. Someone this morning when I said that said, well, I didn't know she were gone. Uh, <laughs> you're a lot kinder than the first group. Uh, it's been 18 weeks since I've been here on this campus, and God is doing some exciting things. For those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, last June, uh, we launched Liberty Heights Lebanon, and so Northside Church and Liberty Heights Church came together. We're still in the process legally uh, of bringing these two entities together, but we have launched and started uh, worship services together back in June, and so it has been a lot of fun what God is doing there. And so I have the opportunity, uh, if we've never met, I'm Chris Anderson, and I am the campus pastor in Lebanon. And uh, hopefully, if we've never met, uh, we'll have an opportunity after the service uh, maybe to greet each other briefly and uh, put a name with a face because I've probably seen your name on a list uh, in our staff meetings. I think nearly 200 people have visited uh, since I was last here, and so a lot of exciting things happening here. Uh, But let me tell you about something that we did uh, about a month ago. And so we did uh, a search of all our LHC members that live in or near Lebanon. We invited them to the Golden Lamb, and we had a vision night. And we shared with them the vision of what God is doing there in Lebanon and invited them to be part of uh, what's going on. In fact, here was our challenge. Sometimes it's exciting to be part of uh, the Liberty Heights campus, the Liberty Township campus, that is, and all the amenities and the, the programs that have been built. You know, everything that's here, someone has come before us and built And now we have the opportunity to go and kind of with a uh, fresh canvas uh, start from scratch. And so we're asking you to invest in what God is doing there. And we're going to share with you this morning the challenge that we shared with everybody that night at the Golden Lamb. And so this was our first challenge. This is perhaps the biggest commitment. Would you commit to making LHC Lebanon your new campus home? Praise God, we've had about seven or eight families that have already chosen to do that. Now, ironically, only two of those are from the Lebanon area. And so the rest of them are from Liberty uh, Liberty Township and Mason and Westchester. And so people are committing to make the drive. It's 11.9 miles from doorstep to doorstep. And so we would invite you uh, to consider making Liberty Heights Lebanon your new campus home. Now, for some of you, maybe that's unreasonable. Maybe you're so plugged in and serving here. Maybe you're a life group leader. Um, So consider this. I'm willing to attend LHC Lebanon on Sunday mornings. That would be our second challenge to you. Uh, It is a beautiful worship center. Uh, The the Northside folks invested about $100,000 into uh, rehab and a remodeling of it about a year and a half ago. And so everybody, when they come there for the first time, they're like, wow, this is way nicer than I expected it to be. It's a beautiful room. It's a little bit smaller than our chapel. It seats about 200 people. But we need critical mass. Right now we have about 55 or 60 adults that we're averaging there on Sunday morning. And we really need about 70 or 75 people. That's the tipping point just to make that room feel uh, full and to feel energetic as we worship and as we uh, worship through teaching. So that would be our second challenge. Our third challenge is this. Um, We're asking people to say, I'm willing to attend LHC Lebanon between now and year end. What's so significant about now and year end? Well, uh, up until last week, we were calling uh, LHC Lebanon, we were calling it our Northside Campus. We were honoring the name of the past, but this past week, we changed it to LHC Lebanon. And that's just an internal change. The sign out front still says Northside, and it will continue to say Northside through the end of the year. Then at Christmas Eve, we're going to change the sign, we're going to do a mailer, we're going to do uh, some promotion, and we're going to relaunch. The North American Mission Board has gotten behind this, and we're going to officially relaunch LHC Lebanon on Christmas Eve. So between now and then, 
We need bodies. We need people that will come and worship, people that will come and serve. And so would you consider um, maybe not making it your permanent home, but making it your home between now and year end? And finally, here is uh, our most desperate, uh, our most current need, our most critical need right now is uh, I'm willing to serve in child care once a month at LHC Lebanon. So prior to uh, our two churches coming together, they ran about five or six children. And now five or six families, you can imagine, uh, bringing young kids. We've already grown exponentially. And so I say exponentially, it's still about 20, uh, 15 to 20 kids each week. But we have 32 spots a month that need filled. And so we're asking people to commit to one spot serving once a month. And so uh, we need 32 of those. We have 21 or 22 already. And so we could use you to come up. Uh, just last week, two people from this campus uh, came up and served in our children's ministry. Uh, and it's so awesome. This is what we say often. We've said it a long time here that growing churches reach young families. And you can see the commitment that we've made in our children's ministry just by walking through the hallways. And so we're asking you to commit to that same level of helping us serve up there at LHC Lebanon. Now I do have to, um, real quickly, while I still have a moment with you, uh, talk about uh, the names, the campus names. Like it's so confusing. What do we call each other? What do we call there? What do we call here? Well, uh, we're simply calling ourselves uh, in Lebanon, LHC Lebanon. And that means that here we're calling ourselves LHC Liberty or Liberty Township. So if you were to go to our website, you'll see that we actually have three locations. There's the forgotten third campus, which is LHC Espanol. They actually meet in this building uh, in our chapel on Sunday mornings. And so three campuses, LHC Liberty, LHC Lebanon, and LHC uh, Espanol. Now here's what this is not. This is not the mothership. Uh, this is not main campus. We're trying to avoid those words. And so we really want to be on equal footing with each other. LHC Liberty, LHC Lebanon, and LHC Espanol. Well, one of the things, if you uh, come and visit us, one of the things that you'll notice is that we teach through the same teaching series uh, in all of our campuses. And so if you're involved in a life group, uh, Pastor Brad has somebody that's in his life group on Wednesday night but lives in Lebanon. And so they're considering coming to uh, church on Sunday mornings. They'll hear the same message preached there that's preached here. So this morning, Pastor Nick is preaching the same outline that I'll preach here at this campus this morning. And so we find ourselves in all our campuses in message number five of Beautiful Mess. And this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so if you'll turn there, we're going to start out in... Uh, verses 5 through 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or with wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but 
only as through fire. Well, we have a dilemma in today's text. Paul is back to the original problem on our list of 15 problems that were plaguing the church at Corinth. And we're back to the problem of divisions. In fact, my Bible, the heading on this chapter says divisions within the church. But this time, Paul seems to be addressing the church leaders more specifically than he's addressing the average church member. Although at times it seems like he's talking to both. So here's the dilemma. Paul is giving a strict warning to church leaders that they will be held in account for how they attempted to build Christ's church. And in verse 13, Paul introduces the instrument or the method of testing the motives of these church leaders that God will use. And that instrument of testing is the judgment seat of Christ. In that passage, it was referred to as the day in verse 13, but it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, typically, when you hear a message on the judgment seat of Christ uh, in the context of this passage, it's usually a standalone message talking about the judgment seat of Christ and how it applies to all believers. In fact, by a show of hands this morning, who was here all the way back in 2013 when Pastor Brad would have taught a series called Here Comes the Judge? Do you remember that? Okay, about uh, uh, some of you here in 2013, and he preached through a, a six-week series where he talked about all the types of judging that, and judgments that are in the Bible. And it was a standalone message or series, so to speak. He wasn't working through the flow of the passage. But as we work through the flow of this passage... The, uh, the, the problem, the dilemma, is that the correct interpretation of the text is that this passage is addressed to church leaders. Or do we step back and do we lean our application towards believers in general? Well, here's the beauty this morning. I think we can do both. And here's why. While the judgment seat of Christ is the method by which the actions and the motives of the church leaders will be judged, the judgment seat of Christ is not reserved only for church leaders. In fact, everyone in this room, everyone around the world that professes Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life, everybody through the history of time that has professed Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life, will experience, will participate in the judgment seat of Christ. And so let's take some time this morning to look at this passage from two different angles. And so that's pastor speak for we're going to cram two sermons into one this morning. My, my wife, right before I got up, the first service said, you're going to have to talk fast, like Pastor Brad fast. So I'm going to try to honor him this morning and talk really fast. So immediately in verse 5, Paul refers to this spirit of division that existed within the church. It was centered around church members openly professing their allegiance to a pastor from the past. And I'm not sure if you can hear it, but you can almost hear the aggravation in Paul's tone as he's addressing these church leaders who themselves are buying into this mindset. And to some degree, it centered around church growth. This church had probably experienced a lot of growth early on, originally under Paul, and then Apollos, and probably even under Peter, who's mentioned as having followed Apollos' ministry. And so let's look this morning at some observations, again, flowing with the text through this issue of divisions, speaking more specifically to pastors and church leaders. Let's make some observations this morning. And the first one we see comes from verse 7, that results... In the church, come from God alone. Results come from God alone. Back up with me to verse 6. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who, it, who gives the growth. 
He who plants and waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. A literal translation of that, we are God's fellow workers, in verse 9 would be, we are fellow workers for God. This doesn't say that we're fellow workers with God as if we share in the responsibility. We're fellow workers for God. And this truth should be incredibly freeing to pastors and church leaders because it frees us from the responsibility of growth. Growth comes from God alone. Pastor Brad came here in 2010. The church was in a little bit of turmoil. And there was this unspoken expectation. In fact, it was even spoken about at times, this expectation for results. But amazingly, his vision never centered around growth. His strategy uh, was never driven towards growth. Being faithful to our uh, command to make disciples is what drove our strategy. Being faithful to his word, being faithful to his church, being faithful in our efforts. And yes, the overflow of that faithfulness was health and vibrancy and yes, even growth. And now we're experiencing the same thing, a similar situation at our Lebanon campus. And I have to constantly be reminded that I'm not responsible for growth. I'm responsible only as a pastor to plant and to water and then to leave the results up to God. And so if you're a a pastor in this room, if you're a retired pastor, I hope that you find that incredibly freeing as you look back over your life of ministry. Our second observation from the text this morning is that God rewards our labor not our results. God rewards our labor, not our results. Again, specifically towards pastors, but application for all this morning. Listen, in the world of high-tech religion, there are huge crowds this morning that are all squinting under the glare of these bright lights that are shining on these famous pastors as they dazzle millions of electronic viewers with their wisdom and rhetorical charm. And for some pastors... For the average pastor, it's easy to see this and become discouraged. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to what? According to his labor. My dad was a pastor most of my childhood years. And the biggest church that I can remember him being a part of uh, as a child was probably about 350 But most of my life was spent in churches of 100 to 150 people. Now, uh, when I graduated from high school and moved out of the house, he actually went on staff at a large church, a mega church in Grand Rapids. But most of my life was spent in small churches. And looking back, my dad's specialty was to go into wounded churches and to help them uh, turn things around spiritually and, and financially and to lead them through turnaround. But a couple years ago, uh, my dad actually confided in me how incredibly discouraging it was at times to labor and to toil and to invest your blood, sweat, and tears into something and never have the good pleasure of seeing sustained seasons of growth. Did you know that 85% of churches in America run less than 200 people? 60% of churches in America run less than 100 people. The average church in America is 89 adults. And for most of those pastors in those small churches, they are a one-man band. And it's an incredibly difficult job. And so when they turn on the TV and they see these famous preachers uh, preaching to these large audiences, sometimes it can be discouraging not to cast judgment on large uh, audiences and famous preachers, but it can be 
discouraging to the average pastor. In fact, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes in surveys, the average pastor will tell you that if they felt they had any other marketable skill, they would leave the ministry in a New York minute. And that's why Pastor Brad and our entire staff has a passion for smaller churches and encouraging those pastors and coming along beside them and reminding them that it's God that's responsible for growth and that their only responsibility is to be faithful to the gifts that God has given them. And I would remind my dad this morning and every pastor that's discouraged that the basis of our reward as pastors will be our labor, not the fruit of our labor. And then the last point I want to make before we switch gears is this, in verse 11. This last observation, the foundation of every successful church is Jesus Christ. Now, I know for many of you that have called LHC home for many years, that it would seem ridiculous that a church would not cling to this truth. But even now, all over our country, we see churches that are built on the celebrity of what? Of a pastor, We see churches centered around fun and excitement and exciting presentations. We see churches built around um, uh, talented worship ministries and talented artists. And we see churches built on many other things than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what makes LHC such an amazing church, isn't it? It's not this ridiculously large building. It's not this magnificent ministry mall that you um, take your breath away when you walk in it for the first time. It's not our vibrant children's ministry. It's not our huge game rooms. It's not even our crazy, talented worship team. I think it's the fact that every single week we point you to Jesus and the fact that every, in every way He is our foundation. And so let's turn the corner. That's part one. Verse 12 Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, as opposed to wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Again, I believe Paul is specifically referring to pastors and church leaders when he says, if anyone builds on this foundation, what foundation? The foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ, verse 11. And up to now, I think that he's been talking more specifically to pastors. And look what he says. He says, each one's work will become manifest because it will be revealed by fire. Apostle James, Jesus' half-brother, later in the Old Testament, he writes this in his letter. James chapter 3, he said, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Apparently, everybody in James' church wanted to be a a, a spiritual leader or a teacher. And so James had to warn them that they should reconsider. I don't know if it was the prestige of the office or the authority. I mean, if they really knew that a pastor is a king of nothing, uh, maybe they would have reconsidered. But they, 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 they forgot when they were seeking to be a teacher and seeking to be a spiritual leader, the tremendous responsibility and the tremendous accountability that comes with that. And James echoes Paul's words when he said that those who teach the word face a stricter judgment. And that judgment will come at the judgment seat of Christ. And so now let's really turn the corner here because while there are a handful of pastors and church leaders and life group leaders in the room this morning, as I said earlier, all of you who profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior will be part of this judgment seat. 
And so let's shift gears and talk for just a few minutes about the judgment seat of Christ and how it applies to all believers. And so I've centered the the rest of our time uh, centers around these four questions that we're going to ask. So these are questions that I would think that you would be asking and you might be sitting there asking one of these questions in your mind. And the first question is this, what exactly is the judgment seat of Christ? And very simply in verse 13, it's a time of evaluation for believers. Verse 13, each one's work will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now the term judgment seat of Christ is not used specifically in this passage, but later in another one of his letters, Paul specifically refers to the same event by this name, the judgment seat of Christ. Now for many people, this term judgment seat of Christ has a negative connotation to it, right? Because judgment, we think of another word in the Bible that sometimes has the same meaning, is condemnation. And when condemnation is used in theology, it's rarely a good word. But let me give you a different word that that maybe we should translate in this instant, uh, this word a little differently from the original language. And the word that really gives us a better idea what's going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ is this word, evaluation. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, a common misconception which arises from this English translation is that God will measure out a just retribution for sins in the believer's life and some measure of punishment for sins will result. That's a common misconception. I grew up in a Christian school. And one of my teachers allowed me or led me to believe that at the judgment seat of Christ there would be this gigantic screen. And it was was your turn. You sat in front of the screen and your whole life played out on this screen. In fact, all of your sins, in fact, mainly your unconfessed sins, those sins that you were most ashamed of, those sins that no one else knew about, would play out on this screen and that God once and for all would dole out the punishment that we deserved. But that's not what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me share with you the good news this morning that Jesus has already suffered on your behalf. And it was good enough to satisfy the Father's demand that sin be paid for. And so the judgment seat of Christ is not of a a time uh, for our sins to be avenged or atoned for, but rather a time of evaluation for how we used our time and our treasure and our talent that, that God entrusted us with and how we use those things here on earth to build his church. Listen to what Paul later writes in another letter to the church at Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we labor that whether present or absent, We may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether it is good or worthless. You maybe have heard another term for the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes theologians will refer to it as the bema seat. The bema seat is a word that's taken from the Greek and the ancient Greek Olympic Games. And the contestants would compete for a prize under the careful scrutiny of a judge. To make sure that all the rules of the contest were obeyed. And then the victor of every given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to this platform similar to where we put a gold medal around their neck. They were brought to a platform to receive their reward. And that platform was called the Bema Seat. Here's another fair question. Will every Christian stand at the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ? We've answered that briefly I've told you the context of this passage indicates that these warnings were to those in spiritual leadership, but how do we know that this warning isn't only for teachers? 
Look at how the application moves beyond preachers and teachers. Look at the last part of verse 10. He says, let each one, he's now referring to everyone within the church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. In verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. And so it's clear here that Paul is addressing everyone within the church and the application stands now or is extended to every believer. But here's another good question. Is it only for believers? And that answer is yes. You can read about in Revelation 20 the judgment that will be uh, for unbelievers. It's called the great white throne judgment. But the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, it's talked about, it's written about in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in each context, each time, it's reserved solely for believers. Every believer will be evaluated based on their eternal impact with the gifts that they've been given and how they use those gifts here on earth. So that's question number one. Here's question number two. When will it happen? Like, when will this take place? Again, it's a very simple answer. Sometime after the rapture. We're going to spend just a few minutes here because, quite honestly, the Bible only gives us a few hints with regard to the timing. The what is far clearer than the when. But it appears the general timing is sometime after the rapture. You say, well, what's the rapture? The rapture is talked about um, later in Paul's writings when he says the Lord will return to gather all of his saints. So those that have passed before will be, those that are dead in Christ will uh, rise first. Then those which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. And so we refer to that as the rapture. I believe that it could happen in our lifetime. And the the, the general timing of the judgment scene of Christ appears sometime after this rapture. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, referring to this rapture. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. You tell your child, listen, when I pick you up from school, I'm going to have a reward for you. And so when the child's picked up from school, they're expecting the reward. That's exactly the same language here. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and when I come, I'm going to have my reward with me. And so there's the expectation that that will happen sometime shortly after the rapture. Often at funerals, uh, we hear this at funerals, there's a lot of um, messed up theology that people uh, cling to. But I've heard this before that, well, the loved one has departed and gone on to their eternal reward. And technically this is not correct. Yes, heaven in and of itself is a reward. But the actual gift of giving eternal rewards is yet a future event. And so the departed saints, when they're with the Lord, um, they're with Him, but no one has received their reward as of yet. The disciples, the apostles, those that have gone before us, have not yet received their reward until Jesus comes back and all the saints of all time are gathered together. Jesus said to a Pharisee he had dined with, he said in Luke chapter 14, then at the resurrection of the righteous, again it's this, this rapture, God will reward you for inviting those who, could, who you could not, who could not repay you. God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So it appears that the judgment seat of Christ will occur sometime after the rapture and probably before the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Takes us to question number three. It's probably the main question surrounding the judgment seat. What will happen at the judgment seat of Christ? And we know from this passage very simply that the eternal rewards will be granted. If every true Christ follower is going to experience the judgment seat of Christ, then what exactly is going to happen there? 
We answer that by first identifying what's not going to happen there. This will not be a time of judging your salvation. Verse 4 is talking about uh, people that clearly have already accepted Jesus Christ, that have already professed him as Lord. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive reward. We're building on what someone has already done. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If we were to study the tenses in this original language, it strongly communicate that the foundation of salvation has already been laid. So let me be as clear as possible. The work of salvation is already complete. Not a single person at the judgment seat of Christ is going to miss out on heaven. Not a single person. The very fact that you're standing there is proof of the fact that you built your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you another false teaching related to the Bema seat that some churches teach. They teach that while your confessed sins are forgiven, that your unconfessed sins are judged and you receive punishment for those unconfessed sins at the judgment seat of Christ. That couldn't be farther from the truth. They, they view the judgment seat of Christ as a time when God will button up loose ends. It's just not simply true. Listen to me carefully. All of your sins were taken care of on the cross. Christ took all of them. 1 John chapter 2 says, Your sins are forgiven you. That's written in a past tense about future sins. Think about that. That's the scope of the cross. Think for just a second. If Christ's work on the cross did not forgive future sins, then every time you and I sinned, Christ would have to climb back on the cross. But he doesn't do that. Because all of his sins, all of our confessed sins, all of our unconfessed sins were all wrapped up in Christ, bore them on the cross so that you could never be condemned again. There is a wonderful truth found in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And Paul starts out this verse, he says, there is therefore. Pastor Brad has taught us that anytime we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what's it there for? And therefore often refers to in light of everything that I've just taught you. So in this case, in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, Paul's saying, Therefore, according to everything I've taught you in these first seven chapters of Romans, which was what? It was the staggering result that was found in all of these chapters that justification is by faith alone on the basis of God's overwhelming grace. So that's what the word therefore means here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, there won't be anybody that's shipped back to hell from heaven. There will be no one there who, who has to be punished. Christ bore all the punishment for you already. In fact, your sins were all in the future when Christ died on the cross anyway. He bundled them all on the cross and bore them all. Listen to what one commentator said. In many of his writings, Paul was picturing the believer as a competitor in a spiritual contest. As the victorious Grecian athlete appeared before the Bema to receive his perishable award, so the Christian will appear before Christ's Bema to receive his imperishable award. The Olympic judge at the Bema bestowed rewards to the victors. He did not whip the losers, neither did he sentence them to hard labor. The judgment seat of Christ be a place where we're presented with our eternal rewards. It is not a time for punishment. And I hope that you find peace and joy and hope in that thought this morning.
It is a time of reward, which leads us to question number four. What are the rewards? And what are we going to do with them? Well, quite simply, the rewards, I believe, are crowns. The Bible specifically addresses five different crowns. I don't think God will be limited to these five crowns only. I think there will be many other things that he can give us. But specifically, he tells us throughout Scripture about five crowns that we could receive. I'll just go through these real quickly. There's the victor's crown. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, awarded to those who have demonstrated self-discipline in their Christian life. There's the crown of rejoicing. I love this one. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This crown is given to those that lead other people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will receive the crown of rejoicing. There's the crown of righteousness that's presented to those who have a longing for Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes that we don't all live with that longing. That's why Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship, it's not in Rome, it's not in the United States, our citizenship is in heaven and we long for that day, and there will be a crown of righteousness to those that long for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an awesome one. The crown of life in James chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2. And this crown is for those who have literally lost their life, their physical life, in the name of Jesus Christ. We would call them martyrs. And finally, there's a crown of glory spoken about in 1 Peter chapter 5, and it's awarded to shepherds or pastors, the people of God. So how does all of this happen? According to this passage, all of our laboring for Jesus Christ is represented by two things. It's by gold, silver, or precious stones, or by wood, hay, and straw. These are treasures that we have laid up for ourselves in heaven. And the difference between these treasures that we've stored up in heaven, the difference between these two different groups, will be the motives behind our actions. Did we do these things for the glory of God? Or did we do it because we enjoyed the attention? Did we do it because we liked uh, some of the, um, the accolades that we got? Did we like the pats on the back that we got? And our true motives will be exposed by the fire. And so these treasures that we have uh, thought that we've laid up in heaven will, will be uh, taken up by a fire. And those that are uh, gold, silver, and precious stones will uh, stand through the fire. And the wood, straw, and hay will be consumed by the fire and its heat. Can you imagine the regret of seeing your treasures burned up? I think it's fair to say that many of us will wish we could have done more. Why? Because my pile of crowns coming out of the fire will never be big enough. You're like, well, Chris, that sounds terrible. Sounds a little self-serving. Let me illustrate this for you. I grew up a huge fan of Michael Jordan. So if you're my age, you grew up in the heyday of the greatest player of all times. Don't even try to bring an argument to me that there's somebody else that could uh, be the GOAT. And if you think that, we can't even be friends. Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time. You should see the trophy room in his house. I have a picture of it for you. And I love this because the floor of his trophy room is the old center court from the old Chicago Stadium where he won his first three championships. And in those glass cases, you can see uh, replicas of the championship trophies, and you can see the MVP trophies, and you can see the awards for the scoring titles, and the Defensive Players of the Year titles, and for the All-Star nominations, and for the All-Star MVPs, and for the gold medals. He has his shoes that were made up there. He even has his weedy boxes in there. And what's it all doing? It's all gathering dust. And there'll be none of that in heaven. Let me read you uh, the purpose of our rewards in heaven. 
Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the 24 elders, which represent the church, the bride of Christ, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Do you see why I want to have a big pile of crowns? Because I want to throw them back at the feet of Jesus. Will there be regret? I think that any time we see uh, an offering uh, that's determined to not have value and burn up, I think that that will bring us uh, regret, but I think that the Regret will be quickly replaced by joy and gratitude that we were counted worthy to receive a reward. In 1999, there was a youth pastor from Daytona Beach. His name was Mark Hall. And he started a student worship band for his life group. He was the lead singer and he wrote several of the songs and quickly grew. This band grew beyond just a student worship band. And within a few years, they had uh, produced several independent albums. And they caught their first big break when Christian songwriter and producer uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman co-produced their first breakout album, which was simply titled with the name of their band. And this album quickly made them one of the fastest-selling debut artists uh, in Christian music history. Their uh, album was certified platinum in 2005 and then again in 2011. One of their songs from that album was Voice of Truth. Spent a record-breaking 14 consecutive weeks at number one on the charts. It was used in the trailer at the ending, ending of the Christian movie, Facing the Giants. And as this band continued to grow over the years, they were rather committed to performing part-time because everyone in the band was still plugged into their respective local church. It's a really neat story. They've gained so much critical acclaim over the years, you would instantly recognize many of the songs they sing, Who Am I? Uh, life song, praise you in the storm, until the wor- whole world hears, glorious day, courageous, Jesus, friend of sinners, if we are the body, the list goes on and on. And despite the fact that 20 years later, having won just about every accolade and every acclaim that one can receive in the Christian music industry, most of the members uh, of the band are still just worship leaders at their local churches. And so they work really hard not to tour on the weekends so that they can still serve back home at their church. I went into Pastor Kyle's office this week to ask him about this band just to make sure when I used this illustration that they really were the real deal. Because some of these guys, when you find out their private life and their public life don't match up, and I said, man, are are these guys as good as it seems? He says, no, they really are. By every account, everything they do is legit, and they're just good guys. And I haven't told you the name of this group yet because I think their name is the coolest part of their whole story. Way back when they were just a student worship band in Daytona Beach, I was around 2001, I believe, they were singing Chris Tomlin's song, We Fall Down. You guys know the lyrics, we fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. And those words took them back to Revelation chapter 4, where the elders in heaven cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus, and so they took the name Casting Crowns. And I remember the first time I connected the dots about this uh, band's name. Casting crowns back at the feet of our Heavenly Father. And folks, that's why I'm working so hard. That's why I labor so diligently. That's why I try to be so faithful. So that on that day when I stand before the master creator of the entire universe, when I stand before a holy and righteous Lord, when I stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when I stand before my Abba Father... And he says to me, well done, 
thou good and faithful servant. That I'll have something of worth to give back to him. That I'll take that crown off of my head and I'll lay it back down at his feet. Casting crowns at the feet of our Heavenly Father. It's my prayer, folks, that everyone in this room this morning has a reservation, the judgment seat of Christ. And together we can throw a celebration, a party, as we cast our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This morning I just want to challenge you briefly for a time of self-examination right there in the quietness of your seat. Are the things that you're doing, are the motives behind the things that you're doing, are they pure? Are they done for the glory of God? Or are they done so that people will recognize you? I'm not exempt from this same question. So I ask that of you this morning. Be honest with yourself. Do you have a reservation to the judgment seat of Christ? Will you even be there? Only you can answer that question. Have you professed Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? Is there evidence, is there fruit that overflows out of your life that says you would be a Christ follower? Do you have a peace and a joy and a hope in your life that goes beyond the circumstances of life that screams the fact that you're storing up treasures in heaven? Will those treasures survive the fire? Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray for those who might not be in a relationship yet with you that might know who Jesus is by name, that might know who Christ is and what he has done, but has never professed you as the Lord of their life. And God, I believe this morning that you're drawing people like that in this room to you. That's what your word says. And that's our prayer this morning, that they would be drawn to you. And for those that are in the room this morning, you can invite Jesus Christ into your life by praying this prayer This morning, it goes something like this. It doesn't have to be these exact words. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning I come to you and when I examine my life, when I compare it to the life of Jesus, I see that I fall short of His standards, of God's standards of holiness. So this morning I confess those times that I have failed you. God, I ask for your forgiveness. This morning I turn and walk away from my sin into new life. I want to be a new creation as your word says. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, give me the strength to do all things through Jesus Christ. God, this morning I 